Thanks, Eric, for uh, leading us in prayer and reading. Looking back on it, maybe I should have had the reading be a little bit longer. <laughs> it's like most of you didn't even get to it and it was done, so sorry about that. Um, but the reason it's just these two verses is because this is, this is where we're, we're going to park for most of our time together this morning as we are studying once again the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think we mentioned maybe last week or when we started this series, this, this is Jesus' manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. He comes preaching this thing called the kingdom of heaven. He's telling people the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And then he launches into this teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins, we saw last week, with these, these eight beatitudes which we said were actually the profile of a person who has repented and believed the good news and therefore been born again into the kingdom of God or this thing called the kingdom of heaven. Now, understand something. When Jesus came into this world to live for us and die for us, He did not come simply, His intention wasn't simply to kind of affirm us where we're at. No, He came to transform us. You've got to understand this. If you are not a Christian, if you uh, uh, are a seeker, let's say, or you're just interested in religious things, for whatever reason you're here, it doesn't really matter. But if you're not a believer, please understand that to be a Christian is not to just kind of add Jesus to your already whatever it is kind of life. Maybe you are, uh, you have a pretty good life, or maybe you are, uh, you know, struggling with an area in your life. You have an addiction problem, or you have a relationship problem, or you're, you're looking for wisdom or stability for your kids and raising your children, or whatever it is, uh, and you think, well, if I get a bit of religion, if I get a bit of Jesus, and I add Him to my life, well, then my life will be a little bit better than it was before, and that is not what Jesus came to do, to be kind of added to your portfolio of, of tools or of, of things that you use to get through a difficult life. Jesus came to deconstruct you and then reconstruct you according to His kingdom, according to His administration. Now, if that all sounds very vague to you and strange, that's okay, hopefully, What's going to happen is this morning things will become a little bit, a little bit clearer for you. But what we said last week was that, that the first thing Jesus does is He empties you. And that's what these first three Beatitudes are about. I'll read them quickly since it doesn't take long to do so. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In each of these Beatitudes, God is emptying us. See, the problem with the human race is, is that we are full of ourselves. We are full of self-centeredness. We are full of self-absorption. We are full of self-regard. We are full of self-concern. And so, if we're going to have a relationship with God, what has to happen to us, first of all, is we need to be emptied of ourselves. The Bible teaches that that, that self-centeredness, which, which it calls sin, 
that commitment to ourself, that commitment to our own agenda, to be, being the person who is their own Lord and Master, who decides for themselves what makes the good life, what is worth my time, what is worth my energy, what I should be pursuing, what, where I should find my joy, all those things, that's, that's sin. And it stands as a barrier between us and our Creator. And if we're going to have a relationship with this Creator, we have to be, we have to be emptied of this sinful self-regard because the life of the kingdom is radically different than life in the world. Life in the kingdom is not centered around our agenda, it's centered around the agenda of the king who is Jesus Christ. Now, that was the first three beatitudes, and then we looked at how what God does then in the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. God fills us up. And what does He fill us up with? He fills us up with the righteousness of Christ. A foreign righteousness, meaning it's not a righteousness that we produce. It's not a goodness that is in us, in and of ourselves. No, no, no. It's Jesus' perfect record of obedience that we are given in order that we might enter into relationship and fellowship with our Creator. He restores that relationship so that we can live now as members of this thing called the kingdom of God. Now, what's the consequences of that? Well, that's what the rest of the Beatitudes is about. The rest of the Beatitudes, they explain for us what it looks like to flourish in that kingdom of God. Kind of like, you know, how a, how a plant flourishes in a garden with a, with a gardener who tends it well, or, or how a team flourishes under the leadership of a good coach who knows which way to go and how to get there. And that's what we're turning our attention to in these last four Beatitudes. We're going to see in these four Beatitudes that everything about a human being who lives in the kingdom of God has changed. Our relationships are different. There is a, a, a psychological change in us. Everything is different about us. So, today we're only going to look at two of them because when I started studying this, I realized that there was just so much packed into each of these little beatitudes that we couldn't just fly through them all. And I did promise you that we were going to go through the Sermon on the Mount together and we had no end date targeted. So we're just going to take as long as it takes for us to, to understand this sermon together. So we're not in a hurry, right? We're not in a rush. We're happy to park in this sermon, which is, as we said, the greatest sermon ever preached. So let's look together at, first of all, what it means that God says, or that Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And secondly, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So remember, these are, these are consequences of being a kingdom person. This is how you will live if you are a kingdom person. If you have been emptied and filled, if you have been deconstructed and reconstructed. So first of all, mercy. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. First thing that helps us in understanding what Jesus is trying to teach here is the, to distinguish, actually, between grace and mercy. What is grace? 
My kids, we would ask them time and time again, what is grace? And the answer was always supposed to be undeserved favor. Grace is is undeserved favor. In other words, grace is giving a person what they don't deserve. It's giving them the opposite of what they deserve. That's grace. Mercy, however, biblically speaking anyway, is, is a little bit deeper, a little bit richer, a little bit more comprehensive. Mercy is to be moved with empathy to the point, so you're moved with empathy for someone who is in need to the point where you want to try to alleviate that pain that they're in, that need that they have. To to have mercy is to, to look at someone and say, I, you know, I feel your pain. I empathize with the circumstance you're in, and I want to do something about it. That's what mercy is. I want to relieve you of the consequences of whatever's happened to you. Usually what it is, is is it's some kind of sin, either a sin that they've committed themselves, and that's gotten them into this mess, or it's a sin that was done to them, and they are the victim of some injustice. Regardless, they're in a bad way, and mercy is to see them in their bad way, to say, "I, I empathize with that, I understand what that is like and what I want to do is try to relieve it to get on my hands and knees to do the messy dirty work of helping restore the dignity that you lost because of sin they're in misery you see them in misery and you say I want to relieve that misery and understand something it's to want to relieve that misery regardless of their responsibility for having created it Listen, we have to be willing to do the hard work of getting our hands dirty in the lives of those who are needy, regardless of what caused them to be found in a state of need, if we are going to fulfill this call to be merciful. And what that means is is that you have to be willing to pay a cost, to pay a price. It costs to lean into the suffering of another person. We all know this intuitively, and that's why we say, maybe not out loud, because you don't want to get caught saying this out loud, but this is what we think. We think, you know what, I'm just going to mind my own business. I'm just going to mind my own business. You got problems, well, I got problems. Everybody's got problems, and I've got to be honest, I don't have the the time, I don't have the emotional bandwidth, I don't maybe have the mental headspace to get involved in your problems, because my problems are big enough for already, and I can't take on more problems that, that, that aren't my own. To be merciful means to do what Paul says in in Galatians chapter 6. He says, bear one another's burdens. What does it mean to bear another another person's burden? Here you have someone who's carrying a log and it weighs 100 pounds, let's say. And for you to bear the burden with them is for you to come alongside and say, okay, I'll take 20 pounds worth of that log or I'll take 50 pounds worth of that log or maybe I'll take 80 pounds of worth of that log so that, so that the, the weight of that log is not carried entirely by you but it is shared between the two of us. And that costs and you know that. I know that. 
That's why I am often more cautious than I ought to be about stepping into someone's pain and suffering and misery because I don't want to pay the cost. It costs. You've got to be ready for it. You've got to be prepared for it. And you've got to remember to be truly merciful means that you step into the pain and the suffering and the hardship of another person regardless of the reason behind their suffering. Listen, the truth of the matter is, is a lot of our problems and a lot of the problems we see around us in the world and the people that we meet and the relationships we have, a lot of these problems are self-inflicted. People are indeed the victims of injustice, absolutely true, but there's a lot of stuff that is our own fault. We make bad choices. We know the good thing that we ought to do, and yet we choose the self-destructive or the relationally destructive thing instead. We know. People who are addicted to substances, are addicted to something that they gave themselves to, and now they can't get themselves out of it. You're right. But it began with a decision. It began with a choice. Some of us are living with lifelong sin that we can't break free of, and it began with a decision. It began with a choice to give ourselves to something that we thought would bring us pleasure, we thought would bring us satisfaction, we thought would bring us contentment, and now we're in the grip of that thing and we can't break out of it, and so we're, we're not the deserving poor. How do you know what the deserving poor is anyway? Can you discern, like... People say, I'm willing to step into the life of the deserving poor. I'll help the deserving poor. Are you you and I able to discern who the deserving poor is versus the, the undeserving poor? We we make decisions and we have choices that have consequences in our life. We we refuse to repent. And the danger is, is for, for others, for you and I, to look at those who are in these situations and say, well, it's their own dumb fault. And they won't repent. They made their bed, now they must lie in it. How many of us parents have said that to our kids, right? Yes, it's true. Very often people are their own worst enemy, yes. But that is no excuse. That is no excuse for us to withhold mercy because you see... What does Jesus say? He says, Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. See, Jesus is not saying, look, you know, if you're kind and merciful to others, then I'll be kind and merciful to you. You might might think that, but that's not how it works. In fact, the other five Beatitudes are what got us to the point where we are here in Beatitude or sorry, the other four Beatitudes got us to the point where we are in Beatitude number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy means, look, you and I have seen that God has been profoundly merciful to us. 
You were poor in spirit, meaning that you, you knew that you had a problem that you could not solve, that it was bigger than you, and that it was bigger than the therapist could solve, and it was bigger than medication could solve, and it was bitter, bigger than, than getting a life coach could solve. You saw that you had this problem. This problem was sin. This problem was a hard heart. This problem was a self-centeredness that you couldn't get around that had made you a rebel to your creator. You saw that this was a problem, and you mourned over that problem. You were meek, and you were humbled by that problem and you cast yourself on the mercy of God and he when you started hungering and thirsting for righteousness he opened your mouth and he filled it with his immeasurable love through Jesus Christ and so now you have seen that you didn't deserve any of the blessings that you have now and because of that you cannot help but long to be merciful to others you come to see your own failings and your own shortcomings, and your own stupidity. And you cannot help but be patient with others and theirs. You become tender, compassionate, patient with the failings of others. Not, not condescending, saying, what's wrong with them? Essentially, what you say is, it could have been me. It could have been me. You say about that person living in downtown Hamilton, strung out on crack, not what's wrong with them, but you say, I could have been born in Hamilton and I, downtown Hamilton to parents who, who were dysfunctional. I could have been born in a family, but by, by the time I'm six years old, I have to go out to the living room and slap my mom around on the face because she's passed out on the couch and ask her if there's anything for breakfast before you try to get, get off to school at, by yourself. But God in his grace, for some reason, beyond your understanding, he puts you in that family. He puts you in that family where a mother and a father loved one another and they chose to stay committed to each other even through the hard times. So you had the stability of a two-parent family and you had parents who actually paid attention to you and raised you up in, 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 in a community that loved you and cared for you and pointed you in the right way. You see, nobody here is here because you figured it out. Because you made it. Because you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Bull. We are all here by grace, guys. Every one of us. And every one of us who is going to stand before the Lord Jesus on the last day, lost in wonder, love, and praise, like I talked about during Amaya's baptism, every single one of us will be there because of grace. Not because we made it. And when that sinks into our hearts, what do we do? We, we can't help but be merciful. You can't help it. Because you're living by the kingdom's ethic, not your own anymore. You basically just say, it could have been me. <laughs> so how? How can I help you? So that's the first one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Second of all, the text says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What is, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the heart. The heart. What's the heart? In the Bible, the heart is the control center of your entire personality. It's the center of your will. It's your core, okay? It's the place where your desires come from. 
And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have an unmixed heart. That's what it means to be pure. When something is pure, it doesn't have anything else in it, right? So it's unmixed. And when you look in the Bible, what you, what you see is that oftentimes, purity of heart is described in relationship, in the Old Testament way, anyway, it's described in relationship to idolatry. So just two, very quickly. One from Psalm 24, it says this. In verses 3 and 4, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. And then moving forward into uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at verse 25, the prophet says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So to be pure in heart in the Bible means to, not to have a divided allegiance. See, an idol is basically anything that you look to to give you a sense of satisfaction and joy in life. To, it's a, the place where you look for your security. It's the place where you look for your identity. And, and an idol can be all kinds of things. Sometimes they're even good things. Idol can be power, or power can be an idol. Love, romantic love, a, a particular kind of relationship can be an idol. Control. We as a session, we meet for uh, prayer and for study once a month. And in our study this week, we're learning about uh, our hearts and trying to diagnose our hearts and what are the idols that we're in danger of. And one of the ones we talked about that is very common among men and, and certainly among people in leadership is this need for control. It can be an idol. But to be pure in heart means that, that you don't look to these idols for security, identity, satisfaction, etc. You look, you look to the true and living God, the only one who can truly satisfy those things that you need. You know what the Christian life is about in a nutshell? It's about becoming more like Jesus. Okay, well, what does that mean? I want to be more like Jesus. You want to be more like Jesus? What do, you, what do you do to be more like Jesus? You know what it all boils down to? It all boils down to recognizing your idols and learning to ditch them. Saying, I know I cannot save myself. I know that I have put this thing on the throne of my heart and, and I have to throw it out and I want God alone to be the center of my life. It is a lifelong journey, friends. To have one God, to have purity of heart. You know, Jesus had purity of heart. What does it mean that Jesus had purity of heart? It meant he was always kind to strangers. It meant that he was always nice and patient with kids who were unruly. It meant that if he had two bucks and somebody needed a buck and all he had was two bucks, he'd happily give them both his two bucks. Don't think of it just simply in terms of moral behavior and he, he made good choices. He was kind and gentle and patient and all that kind of stuff. You know what it boiled down to? He had a pure heart. In other words, he worshiped God, his God and God alone. Nothing else sat on the throne of his heart. You and I, we spend our lives, even if you're a Christian, you spend your life 
trying to be like Jesus. And, and that doesn't mean that your, your, your attempts to be like Jesus are about being kinder or compassionateer or patienter. You know what it is? It's fighting the idols. Repenting of your idolatry time and time and time again. Those things that you're looking for that aren't God. You're looking for identity and satisfaction and joy and contentment in, in purpose and all these other things. And learning to identify those things and learning to kick them off the throne of your heart. The gospel is this. God comes to you and he says, oh, my dear child, I see you're under so much pressure. You're under such a heavy, heavy burden. You think that being beautiful is the most important thing in the world and you feel ugly. You think that having that girl or that guy love you is the most important thing in the world and they can't even give you the time of day. You think that if you get into that program, finally, finally you'll know what your life is for. You'll finally know what you're supposed to do with it and you'll finally be happy. And you can't sleep at night because you still haven't gotten the response back from the application department or admissions department and you are freaking out. You think that if you can just save up this much money and retire at 60, then you can enjoy life. Your kids and your grandkids travel a bit. Oh, yes, and volunteer a lot, too. You think, then I'll finally, finally be content. And so you're toiling away, watching the market, Saying, oh no, my, my RSP portfolio has dropped. Oh no, the real estate market is, is tanking. Oh no, interest rates are climbing. Oh no, oh no, oh no. They're your gods. And they put you under such a heavy burden. If you would just stop chasing, stop worshiping, stop running after these things, serving these things that are slowly grinding you into the dust. If you would come to Jesus, Jesus says, come to me. You are weary. You are burdened. I offer you rest. Worship me only. Admit this sinful tendency in your heart. Just receive me as your Savior. And your conscience will be sprinkled. Your, your heart will finally be free. Because my burden is light. This is the inner transformation of the self, guys. The whole of the Christian life is basically pressing into that, kicking other gods off your heart time and time again. And you're like, how do I know what I'm, what I'm worshiping? I don't know. That's your problem. I got my own problems. Leave me alone. Now, um, ask your... Ask yourself, what, where does your mind go when it slips into neutral? You know, when you're not focused on something, you don't have to be on task, wherever you have an opportunity to daydream a little bit, what, what's in your daydreams? Or, or maybe ask yourself, what, what do I really love? What, what if I can't have it? It terrifies me to no end. If I were to lose this thing or not achieve this thing, I don't know what I'd do. 
What makes you tick? What makes you get up in the morning and, and, and be excited to face the day? These questions uncover these things we call idols. And, and kicking them off is to purify yourself. We, we, we talked about this in the time of confession. This is from 1 John 3. What, is, what does John say? We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is a transformed psyche, okay? And you'll notice as you do that, that the things of God, they become important to you. They become things that matter to you. They, they, it's not just that you're maturing, okay? It's not just that you're, you know, when you were a teenager, you, had, you thought it was cool to swear, and now you're into your 20s, and you're like, well, swearing isn't that cool anymore. Actually, it makes you look kind of stupid. I'm not going to do that anymore. No, it's, it's starting to believe that the things of God are more desirable than the things of the world, you see, your hunger and your thirst for righteousness, it continues to, to grow. It's, it's almost like you're drinking salt water, but in a good way. You know, when you drink salt water, it makes you more thirsty. It doesn't actually quench your thirst. It's the same kind of thing. You're becoming pure just as he is pure, John says in 1 John 3. And what's your reward? Blessed are the pure in heart. What does he say? For they shall see God. And John in 1 John 3, he says... We will see him as he is, face to face. Who will we see? We will see Jesus in the last day. It's called the beatific vision, which essentially means the sight that makes happy. We all seek it, right? We all long for happiness. We all long for that day. Well, it's coming. And the greatest happiness will be ours because on that day, you will see Jesus face to face. You will see him in his glory, but you won't see him scowling at you. You'll see his smile break forth in joy over you. The greatest being in existence, his warmth, his love will, 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 will flood your heart. And if that does not excite you right now, well, maybe you're not a believer. Or maybe it just means you don't quite understand yet what is in store for you when you will finally see him as he is. And that's why you're purifying yourself. Think about this. If you are lonely, if you are isolated, if you are unaccepted by whomever and you feel, you feel this ache, this longing for, for acceptance somewhere, that ache and that longing is ultimately, be, is ultimately for him. And when you see him face to face, I promise, that ache will be relieved. Because you see, he's going to look you in the eye and he is going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because of all the good deeds you did. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, because you have set your heart on me and nothing else. That's the vision, to see Jesus as he is. Don't you long for it? Don't you wish for it? Don't you, don't you wait for the day where, where that little voice that's telling you you don't deserve it and that you're guilty and that why would God ever accept you because of what you did? That little voice is finally going to be shut completely 
where that sense of shame that you carry around because you have a tattoo of your sin on your head, it's invisible, but it's visible to you. You see it every morning in the mirror when you have a look, but nobody else sees it, but you know it's there, and you carry this shame day in and day out. One day when Jesus sees you and you think that that tattoo is blazing your sin across the universe for all to see, and he looks at you with a smile, and he embraces you and takes away the shame and shuts down the light and and erases the tattoo so that you now can finally, for the first time in your life, feel like you are accepted as you are? Am I, am I breaking through to anybody here? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And what a thing it'll be. What a thing it'll be to see God and not be consumed by His holiness, but instead embraced by His grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be merciful. Teach us to purify our hearts as, you are, as our Savior is pure. Teach us Father, to long for that day when we will see our Savior face to face. Make us merciful, magnanimous, generous, open-hearted people along the way. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.